listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday morning, which means that we have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and today I am delighted to introduce our new episode, which features a longtime friend of the RSP, Finbar Curtis, who talks with Jacob Novelet about his recent book, Going Low, How Profane Politics Challenges American Democracy. In this episode, they discuss the growing phenomena of profanation in American politics and culture. They discuss how the violation and transgression of taboos is really sort of the ultimate form of winning or showing dominance over certain liberal sensibilities. But I don't want to give it all away, so I will let them unpack all of these in much more detail. This is Spitting on the Sacred, Politics and Redefining Profanation with Finbar Curtis by Jacob Novelet. Jacob, take it away. Greetings, listeners. I'm Jacob Novelet with the Religious Studies Project, and today I have with me Dr. Finbar Curtis, an associate professor professor of religious studies at Georgia Southern University. Uh, Dr. Curtis is the author of several publications, including the production of American Religious Freedom. But today we will be discussing his most recent work, Going Low. How Profane Politics Challenges American Democracy. Dr. Curtis, it's a pleasure to have you here at the RSP. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I really want to get started with just telling our listeners what inspired you to write this type of book. Uh, Oftentimes, people in religious studies sometimes want to stay away from politics, keep it a separate, but you kind of just challenge it right right at the forefront. So I want to hear what inspired that. Yeah, my field is religion and politics. So yeah, the two topics you're supposed to avoid in play conversation, that, that's what I do. Um, and so that's that's been true since grad school. And so the first book, as you mentioned, um, the production of American religious freedom dealt with religious freedom, but not just in the courts and kind of a more broader kind of social phenomenon of how people talk about and imagine freedom. And a lot of what happened in that book, I was sort of making a central argument that there was no single thing as religious freedom. Really, what we talk about religious freedom is a variety of discourses. And therefore, everything that if you're going to talk about religious freedom, you have to contextualize it in some specific institutional form of governance or discursive project or something like that. And so really, there were sort of eight distinct arguments in that book. But one of the points I was making was that you have to define freedom and you have to define religion, at least within some specific context. And so as I was thinking more about freedom, first continuing on from that, I started to think about free speech. And so I had wanted to write a book on free speech and offense, um, and particularly around questions of religious offense and religious profanation. Um, And I was thinking originally more historically, like uh, the first book was kind of snapshots of times from the early 19th century up to the present. And I was thinking about something similar for a next project. However, then sort of 2016 happened um, and I started getting very immersed in the contemporary moment and wanted to say something about this very, this rise of this profane, offensive style in contemporary politics. Um, And so therefore I ended up with more seven, um, yeah, seven much more contemporary chapters. And that's how we got to going low. Well, you mentioned a lot with the freedom of speech, and I'm quite interested about, I, I kind of want to go ahead and ask it. I know we haven't really defined terms very well, but do you, do you see that as becoming an issue uh, with Elon Musk potentially acquiring Twitter? He's a pretty well-known free speech absolutist. I think, you know, I'm not 
coming in with any argument of my own about free speech, but I'm interested in, it's a study of this, right? It's a study of the discourse on free speech. I think it does create interesting questions. And there's, you know, I do kind of start out referring to Twitter and it, it, you know, there's a certain amount of confusion. On one hand, you have this legal category, right? Free speech is that which, you know, is guaranteed by the First Amendment and the state can't take away. But what does that mean for the rules that govern speech in a variety of social institutions like Twitter, a private corporation? Technically, there's no First Amendment uh, other than Twitter has a First Amendment right to do what it wants. But you don't necessarily have a right to speak on Twitter, yet it's becoming the de facto social forum, right? It's it's where public discourse is happening for better or maybe quite likely for worse. Um, and so what it means then is if somebody regulates it in some way, they are in some sense regulating American political life. And this has raised a lot of the questions that the book's interesting, interested in, you know, what it means to talk about cancel culture, which wasn't even really a term when I started writing this book. It's sort of, I remember somebody re read one of the chapters and said, hey, you really should talk more about cancel culture. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a thing that's coming around. But that's also a kind of an interesting category. Because once again, that's not a legal penalty. It's a kind of social pressure or exerting some institutional power. And so what are the rules that govern that? And I don't have an answer for these things, but that's kind of what the book is investigating. It's trying to look at what all of this means, especially with liberal conceptions of free speech, or as you just mentioned, free speech absolutism, right? People think that free speech is good as a matter of principle always, right? And, and all speech should be out there. And the classical liberal way to understand that is if you have bad speech, you just respond to it with good speech. But there's also a recognition that, well, the institutional realities of mass media are such that bad speech can do a lot of work, right? And so it's more complicated. I think I'm, I'm not a free speech absolutist, at least in that sense. Yeah. And there's definitely been a lot of talk with, with speech just in general with, you know, recent book bannings and just things that you can say versus things you can't say. And that's what you really discuss in the book. And some of the terms that you use to describe that are, are terms like liberalism and illiberal secularism in particular. Uh, would you care to define those terms for us? That way we can kind of get on uh, the same kind of ground. Yeah, well, I kind of duck a clear explanation of liberalism, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, a centuries old discourse about rights and liberty and freedom, right, in some sense or another. But there's also a lot that goes along with what sort of speech needs to happen for liberal political discourse to work or liberal political institutions, right? So if we think about liberalism, just in that sense of institutions that are governed by the people that also protect rights in some way or another, right? And a kind of belief in public goods that goes, that, that sort of fits with that. Illiberalism, I think, is a response to liberalism and, and a rejection, not necessarily of the idea of rights or, or liberalism from the state perspective, but a lot of the ethos of liberalism, and especially an ethos about discussions about public goods over and against, say, private liberties. And increasingly, illiberalism, as I read it, is a kind of rejection of whatever liberalism holds dear and sacred, right? And so with the rise of illiberalism, people have sometimes also, if we think about this other term, secularism, been seeing this as a kind of reaction against secular institutions. And what I'm doing is something weird is I'm saying, actually, I think that illiberalism is making peace with secular institutions, particular secular divisions that code the public as political, 
and the state versus the religion as a private matter. And I'm saying that actually, rather than resist religious privatization, which is kind of one theory of secularization, contemporary liberalism accepts the privacy of religion, but therefore seeks to expand the scope of private institutions at the expense of the public, right? So it basically seeks to burn the public down. And one way of doing that is sort of a kind of willful disregard or disrespect for public goods and public institutions. So basically, uh, the illiberal vision of the state is one in which we sort of gut public goods and sort of protect simply the military and the police. That's about as much as the state as we need from, a, from an illiberal perspective. And what I'm interested, therefore, is the attempt not so much to Christianize the state, but just to destroy the state to protect private institutions like uh, faith, you know, churches, families, corporations, sort of the holy trinity of private institutions, right? Um, and um, and sort of expand those institutions. And in a way, it's sort of a way of just kind of avoiding contact with other people, right? And so I think that's what a kind of rise of il- what I'm calling illiberal secularism. Since that that kind of idea is pretty divisive, I mean, it, it's it's very much about protecting, this is going to sound probably a little more selfish than, than it intends to, but protecting your own interests. And I'm wondering if we can relate that to a type of like nationalism or maybe a sense of, I don't know, it almost to me feels like there, there's a presence of fear amongst people that are okay with things that may be considered divisive just in order for their own protection. I, I don't think we can blame them as, you know, being, I guess, very negative or, or very anti this, anti that because of hatred. But but I think fear may may play a, a significant role here. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, nationalism is a big thorny concept, you know, and I actually, my dissertation was speaking of the nation. So I was interested in political theories of nationalism. So I was reading a lot of Benedict Anderson and people like that back in grad school. Um, and I was interested in the idea of a nation as an imagined community, right? That it's, you can't really fact check a nation. It's not something that exactly exists objectively. It's a feeling, a set of sentiments, um, you know, some organic connection among people in which the people are not necessarily just everybody who lives in the state, right? There's some distinction between nation and state. And that's another part of the illiberal secularism argument. So I'm saying, well, um, the current sort of Christian nationalism, right? That that's a term that's, um, I mean, I used it, you know, in in the first book to talk about people like William Jennings Bryan and then D.W. Griffith in the sort of late 19th and early 20th century. So I had a couple chapters on Christian nationalism in in that sense. But what I think you're seeing there is a kind of sense to which there's some connection between the sense of identity as American as tied to faith and family and things like that. But what I'm doing and the part that's weird is I'm uncoupling, or at least I think liberalism is uncoupling nation and state very strongly. So the government is bad. The thing in Washington, D.C., that's no good. Um, And the public goods or public institutions that the state should support, they're bad too. But we need to protect the nation from the state almost, right? So, um, and so when the nation sort of becomes very separate from the state, in a weird sort of way, the nation becomes privatized, right? So um, once again, it's much more in families and churches than it would be in the state institutions of power. And so I'm interested in the implications of that. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, Christian nationalism has blown up well, you know, well beyond, at least as a term, scholarly term, 
well beyond what I was doing back in in my dissertation. But and I think what might be a little I'm interested in that is that, and I think what's what's kind of changed a bit is that you know when I was writing the first book, there was a lot of kind of post-colonial critiques of secular liberalism, right? People were picking that apart, and then I think yeah, 2015, 2016 happened, and with this rise of illiberalism or populism or nationalism or fascism or whatever it is that we want to call this, people were like, we don't have time for that. Like we don't have time to be critiquing secular liberalism because. Um, liberal democracy might go away, right? So when it was threatened in that sense, all of a sudden, everybody became very liberal again. Um, and I think what we've been seeing is a lot of kind of anti-Christian nationalist polemics, right? Because I think there's this kind of emergency sense, like we need to do something, we need to get involved. And um, and I respect that. I mean, I think a lot of this work that's coming out, a lot of it's by my friends, you know, where people are taking much more activist, normative framework and and also trying to reach a broader public audience and i think that's really important work and so a lot of those books will sell way way more copies than my book and they should you know i think that that's the audience that they're directed to i think what i'm doing is a little more academic in the sense that i'm actually going i still think some of that secularism studies has something to say here so i'm adding some theoretical wrinkles for example some of what i was saying like i think the nation here is privatized i think it's consistent with secularism and that probably makes my book a little bit of an outlier. That's a kind of a weird argument. And I recognize that's a weird argument. But yeah, so it's, it's in that sense, I think it's related to a lot of the contemporary scholarship on Christian nationalism, but it makes a kind of weird, what I hope is a, um, a, a, th a thought-provoking contribution to that discourse, right? Well, and, and the two things that you really talk about in this book, obviously sacred spaces and profane spaces. And I think... And in many ways, the, these ideas, uh, I see almost a, at least with these more nationalist kinds of movements, an almost projection of their idea of what America really is. And, and I think what they do is they kind of project their own community in line with what the nation is, or at least should be. And that whenever their community rules, those private rules that you mentioned, don't match that public sphere, that Clearly, something has gone wrong with the country, not that the country has evolved or maybe the community has gotten smaller or less influential. Yeah. I mean, in a way, what, you know, the sacred and profane discussion is kind of getting to some really old discussion, you know, going back to Durkheim and people like that and, and thinking about the sacred as that which binds people together into some kind of community around some shared space of, of or accepting the sacred. Now, I don't necessarily, I'm not a Durkheimian in the sense that I don't necessarily think that's necessary for the social order, um, that you have to have some division between sacred and profane. But I think it does sometimes, that is a good way of describing some sociological institutions and formations. And I think a lot of discourses about nationalism often play in that, right? There's, there's some sense, you know, we all have to respect the flag, right? Uh, that's some symbol uh, or respect the troops or things like that as kind of sacrosanct. You can't touch them. That That's sort of any critique of that would be seen as kind of jarring or threatening, uh, which is, you know, one of the, the chapters is about, you know, NFL kneeling controversies, you know, where I deal with that like civil religion question, right? Where it's sort of like, how do we deal with this profaning national symbols and what sort of social work does that do? But I also think, you know, profanation does a lot of important social work, not maybe sort of morally neutral in some sense, like it can um, it can help to uh, challenge some kind of 
entrenched authority that goes without question, uh, or it can sort of debase what, you know, be a way of insulting somebody who is less powerful, right? And it can do different kinds of work, but I think it's always doing some kind of social work, right? So I don't necessarily think, yeah, that the sacred profane, I'm not a phenomenologist of religion who thinks that that is some basic constitutive part of what it means to be human. But I do think that people do sometimes organize social institutions in that way. And when they do choose to inst organize institutions that way, profanation becomes an interesting problem. Do you think that part of it may be that the, the, the reason we think that these institutions that are important to us, what many people would call sacred to them, do you think that, that a lot of the polarization that's occurred in conflict over these resources and institutions, do you think a lot of that could be just because we're not defining our terms, as in we're not just talking with each other like we should in order to reach a compromise? I mean, I think a lot of nationalism is an anxiety about pluralism, diversity, you know, that that's kind of like sort of makes you because there's a sense which, wow, there isn't a common shared set of symbols that we can refer to and all agree upon as being sacred. And therefore, for the nationalists, that threatens the social order, right? And once again, I don't think it's necessary to say be a nationalist, right? That's not a position that I have. But I do think a lot of the rise in nationalism, we got back to that question of fear, is fear of difference, right? It's fear of other people, because you are sort of hunkering down with some sense that we need some shared symbol and that everybody needs to respect this in the same way, right? So if not everybody is respecting my God, I, I sort of struggle with imagining how the social order is going to look, right? Like we all need to respect the Ten Commandments and the flag, or else we're going to have social chaos and social disorder. And that's in some sense how specifically a Christian nationalist would see the world. And so I think what it is is it's an anxiety about the lack of common identity in some sense. Uh, you know, to the extent to which nationalism is very much a, an identitarian discourse or a project of identification, and so it often uses some symbols and say, hey. We need to all agree these are things that we all revere in some way. Um, and when those seem to be challenged, it's some sense of, well, that's how I organize the social world. So I don't know how the social world is going to be organized now. And therefore, what I'm going to need to do is hunker down with some people like me, maybe in private institutions. So I've abandoned the public schools. I think that they're hopeless. Uh, what I'm going to do is just try to create private institutions. And there we can at least have a group of people who share some identity and some principles. So whenever I, I hear things like this, I, I automatically think of how, how humans oftentimes think in binaries. So you mentioned a lot in your book, winning and losing as being a big political strategy and just a social strategy nowadays. And I'm wondering if it's this if I, I I must be right, they must be wrong, or you know, if it's not this way, it has to be this way. I'm wondering if that kind of thinking is sparking a lot of almost escalation, kind of like people digging in their heels and 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 refusing that kind of compromising tone. Yeah, I mean, originally the the first working title for the book was "So Much Winning," you know, and I really thought that was a central problem. And a lot of it, it came from, you know, I live in a part of the world, I live in Trump country, you know, so the, the county that I live in, you know, 60% voted for Trump. And so I talked to Trump supporters every day. And a lot of times I was just sort of asking them, okay, well, why do you like this guy? And what was striking to me is it wasn't so much, oh, well, we need to pack the Supreme Court or things, you know, it wasn't issues. It was metaphors about strength and dominance. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're weak and we need to be strong. You know, we need somebody who's going to stand up for us and stand up to the other 
And I, and I thought that really, in some ways, it's appealing to this very visceral sense, which in a way is a problem for liberalism, right? Liberalism is a system based upon compromise. It's a system that says, okay, we're all going to get some of what we want, but nobody's going to completely win. Now, at least that's in theory how liberalism is supposed to work. In practice, of course, there's all sorts of winners and losers in liberal democratic institutions, but it's often kind of untheorized. Like we all know that winning and losing is a part of social life. But so that was kind of one thing I wanted to think about in the book. What is it? What's going on when people are invested in winning for the sake of winning? Um, and how much can contemporary liberal politics or particularly a guy like Trump play on that sense that you're losing something and that we need to turn that around and we need to have a projection of winning? Now, once again, I don't think it's necessary to organize the social world into those sorts of binaries. I certainly don't aspire to be somebody who takes winning as a personal ethic or political ethic, you know, but I think it's out there. And I think the people who do want to organize the world around winning and losing are particularly enlivened by contemporary uh, illiberal politics, because a lot of times, too, getting back to that sacred and profane thing, that's often a game of winners and losers, right? In other words, if I can profane what you uh, hold sacred and you can't do anything about it, I've scored some social capital at your expense, right? Or I've profaned something you hold sacred and you beat me up, you know, then you've kind of rectified that kind of social inequality or something like that. Uh, and I think I was interested in those problems, right? There is something, there's a, a feeling of power that can come from transgressing somebody else's norms and somebody else or or violating somebody else's taboos. Um, and 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 I think that that's a kind of a, a, a sociological problem that 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 I was trying to work through and understand. Well, so do you think it could be that the reason these reactions are so visceral is because it almost feels like it, a, a, a run on vengeance? Like you're, you're, you're feeling fearful and you want to take what, what you believe was taken from you back. Is, is that, do you think that could be part of this kind of mentality? Sure. I mean, it, I think, I think it is. I mean, and I think Trump thinks about it like that, right? I mean, it is about, and so in that sense, it becomes, you know, about lost religious dominance, about lost racial dominance, about lost gender dominance, different for, like, if you feel that you should be dominant, that is your white Christian male identity should be the dominant form of identity. And that's challenged or lost in some ways. Well, we need somebody to reassert it. Right. And I think that's, uh, yeah. And, then, and I think winning and losing gets to the heart of that, which is why two discourses of winning and losing have problems with diversity, right? That, that causes a, a set of anxieties for them because liberalism is sort of at least ideally, well, I don't know if ideally is even the right word, but certainly liberalism. And also too, I mean, this book is kind of a critique of liberalism. It's sort of saying liberalism has some problems that it can't quite work through. And it's also being challenged, not just by illiberalism uh, on the right, but it's also being challenged by the left who want more assertive models of equality and freedom to do something about racial and religious and gendered inequalities, right? We need to be more aggressive about this, that liberalism is too weak about these problems. And so I was interested in that as well. So sort of liberalism is getting hit from multiple sides here. 
but yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that it could be seen once again as a form of vengeance on the people who feel like they've lost something, but also there's a critique of liberalism on people like, hey, we haven't really got there. Like we don't have a model of equality. Uh, we're still very much invested in a white Christian nationalist society, right? Um, and that that's still very powerful. Um, and it hasn't been lost, right? So a lot of where you fit on the political spectrum comes with how you appraise that problem. And, and it's interesting because it creates almost kind of a, a I, I want to say almost a hypocritical kind of situation where sometimes to preserve that that power complex, people sacrifice what they deem as their moral values. I mean, uh, we're we're looking right now uh, the Herschel Walker incident where he he's been uh, accused by a former partner that. You know, he paid for an abortion despite being publicly very anti-abortion and and people are, you know, are buying it. So it's kind of kind of interesting, like, is winning more important than what you claim to be your own morality? Well, so there's one I mean, a lot of this is um, I was interested in this problem, especially like 2015, 2016, where, yeah, very early in 2015, I thought, well, Trump is going to have a problem in the South. Right. He's not going to speak and evangelical Christian idiom and turned out, and I saw very early, oh, that's not the case. You know, and I was seeing that in 2015, once again, just around here, the way people were getting excited about this guy. And that was an early problem that I had to figure out because they know he doesn't go to church. Like they know that, right? And they know that's not a thing that they think differently about. They, they somehow believe that. Um, but I, and that's where I started to kind of read this is like, I think we need to complicate Christian nationalism here a little bit in that it isn't necessarily the case. Um, and I think other people talking about Christian nationalism and saying, hey, this even extends to people who aren't Christian. Um, but for me, that's like, okay, so then I need to explain that in terms of secularism. I think they're making not so much, one could read that as hypocrisy and descriptively that's probably right. Or another way to read that is it's just, that's a secular bargain, right? That's what you do. You sort of say, hey, religious morals, that's a private matter. Right. That's you and your family and how you're going to govern things. But when we're dealing with politics, no, we need to create some coalition of, across groups that's going to combat the liberal threat to our private institutions. Right. So really, all you're asking is not, once again, to Christianize the government. That's not necessarily what you're doing. You're asking to protect Christians from the government. Right. And that fits with the secular ethos. And so that's one reason I kind of settled on illiberal secularism. It helped me to get to that problem. It helped me to explain um, the not just willingness to tolerate a profane style, but a real buying into it. Like, because I mean, yeah, people once again around here, it's not like they're like, well, I don't really like Trump, but I'll vote for him. Like, no, they love him. They love, love this man, yeah. you know, and he speaks to them on some level. And I'm like, yeah, that we can't just frame that purely as a pragmatic bargain. He's doing something. I mean, once again, it's a kind of bargain in the sense that, yes, they're saying we, we're not going to Christianize the state, but he really makes us feel like we're protected. Right. He makes us feel yeah, like yeah. our Christian institutions will be protected from that state, even though he may not himself be going to church, but it protects my way of life. And he does that for me. And he makes me feel safe and he makes me feel powerful and strong at the same time. Um, and that's so I don't necessarily see that as trading religion for politics. I see that as kind of on the same spectrum, you know, like sort of 
protecting religion from politics. And therefore, you need a strong, possibly profane figure to do that. Because after all, you're already convinced that the government is a morally and theologically impoverished place, right? So let's get somebody to really drive that home, to dramatize the moral and theological impoverishment of public life, right? And he does that and we can enjoy it. And we can really take a special pleasure in seeing liberal public goods be totally disrespected. Um, and I think that's that's kind of why, once again, I'm, I'm still framing this in terms of secular studies rather than say, seeing this as a Christianized state. Yeah, and I think I'm gonna use a fairly Christian term, but not in, in, in relation to Christianity in general, but he's almost, it's almost like, a populist messiah kind of you, you play on that that energy that that those really gut reactions to say hey this is someone that's different than all the rest and therefore they're our boy type, type of mentality is, is that kind of the spectrum yeah i mean once again it could get to back to that vengeance you're, you're feeling disrespected right you're feeling like you're losing right so same-sex marriage has been legalized, right? Um, you're you're increasingly having to use language that makes no sense to you, or at least that's what they're telling you in schools or in mass media institutions. And you're feeling increasingly like you're losing some sense of that national identity that you have. Here's a guy who comes and crushes those people uh, who are sort of where you're losing all those religious gains, um, and he's meeting them on their grounds, right? And so therefore, you're 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 happy about that. He's he's deliberately saying the things that liberalism says you're not supposed to say. And that's exciting. It's exhilarating to see. So in that sense, they're taking a profane pleasure in sort of violating somebody else's taboos, right? And so that's kind of what I was trying to get. It's like, this is pleasurable. Like Trump gives them joy. It doesn't just deliver political goods. It does work for them. Yeah, because it says everything they want to say, but they know they, they either right. can't or shouldn't. And so yeah, it kind of frees them of the moral responsibility. Right. They feel like they're in a world of political correctness and cancel culture that's telling them they can't say things. Right. Which is why that that language is a, really their language. Right. I mean, or at least it's illiberal language. Right. So very few people, you know, on the left are continuing to use cancel culture or woke anymore. If you hear somebody talking about that, it's probably somebody on the right or illiberalism right. complaining about this. Right. Um, and so I'm interested in that problem as well. But at least it's the perception that you're offending their woke sensibilities. And that, once again, brings you joy. Well, and I think shifting a little bit to a potential antiquarian kind of justification for this, you mentioned in your book that they oftentimes use older resources to kind of justify their position in a more classical liberal way, like, for example, clash of civilizations, uh, of defining themselves as the civilized culture. Yeah, there's a real that that's so there's one the second chapter in particular we get into Bannon is is you know and I'm really kind of it's it's a little bit elliptical. There's some thorny problems there because on one hand, yes, we're defending civilization, right? So civilization of course though has these, you know, same roots as civility, politeness, like we're refined. We're 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 kind of more elevated than the, you know the barbarians at the bait at the gates right so we need to protect civilization from them but increasingly i think it's framed just much more in an identitarian way right it's just us versus them and so the civilization is we need to protect our christian civilization and so part of what i was getting at in that second chapter that was on steve bannon is in some sense the transnational quality of this right so most of it is on us but it is a movement as we know that's also in hungary 
It's in India, it's in the Philippines, it's in Brazil, it's all over the world in which we see similar sorts of nationalist, populist, authoritarian, however we want to call this, reactions to liberalism in some way. So illiberalism is a movement that is once kind of transnational and nationalist at the same time. And kind of what it is, is an agreement to say, hey, we recognize as Christian nationalists in the US that Hungary wants to protect Hungary for the Hungarians, right? We And we kind of see that and we recognize that everybody has some nationalist project. And therefore the real enemy becomes the globalists, right? So the globalists are those people who threaten civilizational boundaries and civilizational differences, right? But I mean, it's not, it's tricky because it's not entirely consistent, right? Because once again, you have getting back to, well, what about good manners or good behavior, right? Is that part of civility or civilization? And it sort of says, well, maybe if we win this battle and win this war, we can get back to that. But right now, it's all hands on deck. We're at war. And so we need sort of uncivil ways of dealing with finally protecting our civilization. And it's interesting, I think, also how even amongst those conflicts and, and especially the rejection of globalist ideas, I mean, think about how many I stand with Ukraine stickers you see as well. Whereas, you know, this is a country that most people in, in this nation would never visit and, you know, don't know anything about. But all of a sudden they're pro-Ukraine over Russia and, and, in a globalist context. Yeah. And that's, you know, once again, global, I mean, globalist is, of course, a very shady word. It has anti-Semitic overturns, right. you know, like that, that sense to which it's national, you know, lacking any kind of national content or identity. And it's funny because a lot of times I still remember a time where anti-globalization was a movement on the left, right? You were against NAFTA or things like that. You know, you didn't, you wanted to kind of protect labor, you know, or things like that. And so it's increasingly though become a kind of representative of a kind of liberal multiculturalism, right? And that's what a globalist is. So if you believe in being a global citizen, um, that's sort of a threat to nationalism in some way. Now, yeah, I mean, with Ukraine, what's interesting and so in some sense, people are happily globalists if they don't use that term to describe themselves to the extent to which they're like, yeah, I am worried about refugees. I'm worried about somebody someplace around the world who might you know, be uh, the victim of a unprovoked aggression. And But what is interesting is how at least, I still don't think it's the majority, but there is kind of chipping away back to be loyal to our guy Putin, at least in, you know, Tucker Carlson's of the world or things like that are, are still kind of like we really are invested in this Russian nationalist project. So I still don't think that's the majority of people. I, th I still think, you know, and I don't know what the current polls are, but I think most Americans are still broadly supportive of Ukraine, including, I don't know where most Trump supporters would be. But it does seem like it kind of there's this weird creep of of like, no, we don't want to lend our support to Ukraine. So I think among at least the more hardcore right or the CPAC right, they're like, no, it's we shouldn't be giving our tax dollars to defending Ukraine. If Russia wants to be strong and get in there and take it over, then we should let them do that. Right. So it is still kind of um, I think that's a an interesting set of fault lines, but we'll see where that ends up in six months, you know, or a year five years or whatever. And I'm not sure. And I think we also see kind of this diversion from morality uh, in the private context to the public context, uh, or even sometimes the blending of the two with, with just regular social behavior. So I work in education and it, it's become from the time I was in school, which was not long ago to the time now, 
just the acceptance, for example, of students swearing is oh, is radically different. And, you know, it, I, I think for many people hearing that in a school would have been a really profane thing. That's something at least spoken out loud um, to where other people could hear you. That that would be kind of a profane thing. But now it, it's 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 not very much. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, that, that sense of profanity in that sense, right. You know, just, just language that you're saying out loud, what you're not supposed to say. Right. You know, and that's, that's kind of what profanity might be. And you do see kind of, I mean, and I think what you're probably getting at there is a kind of, once again, the broader Durkheimian point that, that, that distinction that, that is that, that marking some things as profane and some things that are special and set apart and should be revered is pervasive in social institutions. And, and I, you know, I don't know, you know, whether that is the case, but yeah, I mean, and so part of what I was getting at in this book with liberal civility, it's not necessarily sacred in a religious sense. It's that these are the rules, the things you don't say, the rules you don't break, um, the things that, um, and in some sense, that liberal civility is, could even be problematic in a lot of ways, right? There's a kind of leftist critique of liberal civility that is, you're dealing with questions of racism or Islamophobia or homophobia by not talking about them in polite society, right? And that's one way you want to enjoy, avoid those questions. And that's a way of producing liberal civility. And therefore, those people who are anxious about the loss of liberal civility might just be anxious about protecting those norms, right? Rather than say somebody taking offense because like, well, those discourses hurt people, right? And they cause harm to people, right? And so there's a difference between, yeah, profanation, like profane language that's just uh, violating a norm of some sense or language that's actually hurting somebody, because probably it's the case that it's, well, depends on the school, right? Where there's certain terms that might've been fine 20 years ago, that would be less fine now. And they might be, a, so in other words, it might just be a changing, and I'd, I'd have to think about that or sort of analyze that for, but it might just be a changing set of which words are okay and which words were not okay. Right. And we've we've changed out what sorts of things we're protecting, what sort of things that we're not protecting, because it always, I, you know, and part of what I mean, part of what I was thinking, both when I was thinking about this in religious freedom and free speech is as a historian, you're always worried about the nostalgia problem. Like, right, really, are, you know, that, that people are always sort of saying, you know, kids today have no respect, you know, for for anything. Right. And then you go back. I mean, I sort of wrote my master's thesis on Cotton Mather, where he's like, you know, we used to be a Christian nation. And then now it's 1700 and everything's gone to hell. You know, nobody, kids don't respect their elders. Nobody follows the rules anymore. It's all just, just, we need to protect individual people. So as long as there have been adults and children, there's always been a sense that the kids today have no respect and have no decency. Um, so I'm always trying to watch out for that. It's like, are we really just projecting nostalgia or is there some change? And I think in the case, in this case, uh, say in the case, if we go back to American politics, no, there are some things that are different. I mean, people have not spoken like Trump in that public office in that way, right? I mean, there were people who might have been, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson was famously profane, but that was in private. You know, he didn't get, you know, right. say, let's, he didn't go to the rally and say, let's kick their asses, right? That's, that's, so he's introducing something. And I think that is reasonably talked about as novel, as different. And it shows something, right? It shows something that is, a bit new, and I do think that's why I wanted to talk about this profane style or the rise of a profane style. But yeah, but at the same time, I'm always checking myself. Is this like, are we really just 
um, once again, being nostalgic for some time that didn't really exist. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always juggling that. I never quite know how to answer. Is this actually a sense that, you know, there is more profane speech today or does it seem like that because we remember something different once upon a time? And the last kind of thing I, I, I want to touch on um, before asking about some future plans. Friedrich Nietzsche had a discussion of the parable of the madman, the idea of if you kill God, you lose the moral center that really kind of guides your civilization. Do, what do we have left to define almost like the sacred or what we're supposed to do? And is, is that something that's that just basic idea becoming an issue, do you think, in as our society becomes more pluralistic? Well, in my reading, so my reading of Nietzsche way back when is, is I think what's going on there is he really says, look, you know, God is dead and we have killed him. You know, like you, he's, he's in that sense uh, dead. But in a way, what Christians were doing is they were the ones who were valuing another world. They were devaluing this body. They were saying no to the world that we live in right here and sort of producing something. I mean, if sacred wasn't quite his language, you know, produce, you know, valuing that other world, valuing something else, right? Um, that teaches us that this body and ourselves are not good and we should be feeling guilty about them. And that's, in some sense, morality teaches us to be suspicious of human strength and human, you know, aristocratic tendencies or things like that. And so in a way, it creates the possibility of saying yes to life by not having that, right? By, by sort, of, um, sort of undoing Christian nihilism, right? It's the Christians who are the ones who are devaluing the world and they're saying yes, right? Um, and, or, or at least Nietzsche wants to say yes. And that could be one sense in which profanation might be liberating, right? So, you know, Zarathustra, you know, might want to liberate people from the sense to which there's something that they have to uh, respect, necessarily, you know, or, or that they need to belittle themselves or humble themselves. And you could read Trump, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily do this, but, you know, as a kind of a weird, perverse play on, I mean, he could be like Zarathustra's ape, you know, that is, he's somebody who's talking about strength, but by putting other people down. And I think Nietzsche right. doesn't like that, right? You know, that, that you could be strong by sort of denigrating other people rather than just being strong in and of yourself. But it's a, and Nietzsche is very complex and tricky on that point. And I'm not a Nietzschean, you know, but that, but I do think, and I was trying to also, there's a Marxist strain of that too, which is profanation is good, right? It's good right. that money profanes everything that is holy, that we sweep aside all fixed and fast relations. And therefore we can see the real world as it really is, rather than sort of be sort of distorted through some halo that forces us to revere uh, social hierarchies, right? And it allows for equality and sort of Walter Benjamin plays on that. He's like, that's what film does, right? Film sort of uh, takes away the ritual parasitic quality of art and it allows us to really enjoy it, right? And, and, and have it be present to us and touch and touch it. And that creates the possibility of a new mass culture, which could go in two directions. One, it could go to communism in which we all share and share alike and have a new form of equality. Or it can, on the flip side, become fascist, you know, and in one in which we're mobilizing the people into some mass or some group, but rather than have some sort of equality, this is done for the totalitarian leader in which we allow people to express themselves as members of some mass, but not really in some sort of economically or materially or culturally equal way. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but I'm kind of sort of rambling a bit. But I mean, those are sort of classic discussions about what happens when you start to profane everything that's sacred, right? Well, what does that, 
What does that produce? And it's a little bit weird that I'm applying this contemporary liberalism, because once again, I don't know if it's good that liberalism makes these taboo subjects or taboo issues. And that might be a weakness in liberalism. And it might be something that Trump is sort of exposing, right? That if you're just making these things norms of civility, that's the reason you're not giving offense. That might be a kind of weak reason not to be giving offense, right? So I'm sort of taking some of those older discourses and applying it to the present day. But some people might object to that, you know, like, so we'll see, we'll see how this is received, you know. Well, uh, with that, since we're about out of time, I want to know, do you have any future projects in the works or are you still kind of recovering from this last one? Yeah, I'm still sort of recovering. What I've got is uh, I've got to write an assessment report that's two weeks old, right? So I'm, I'm sort of knee deep in teaching, honestly, that, that's where I'm at. And I've got, so what I have is a number of smaller projects. I'm sort of, I'm done with the contemporary moment. So one thing that was hard about writing this book was every day, some new thing was happening that I had to read. So I just had, you know, books stacked up around my apartment. And so one mea culpa, you know, that I have about the book is, you know, if somebody says, hey, why did you leave out this? Uh, I'd be like, you're right, that should be in there. And there were even a couple other chapters that I just cut, you know, not because they weren't interesting, just because I would like, I had to get it done, you know? So it was a weird part of this project was trying to make it timely and trying to come out at a moment where it was talking about the contemporary moment. Uh, but that meant, you know, I remember as soon as I sent off the press, then, you know, or sent off the, you know, final copy edits. And then I just like saw like two books that were just like, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't read that. Those are so relevant and germane to this topic. So to fix that, what I'm doing is I'm going back in time and kind of going back to some of the stuff that I started out with, which was like the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1920s. Um, and so I have one chapter that I'm working on that's kind of an overview of the fundamentalist modernist controversies. There's also some old kind of projects that were half written, like little conference papers that never quite made it into articles. So there's like half a dozen of those, right? So it's more that historical material. So it's kind of like clearing out the file cabinet a little bit more so than starting something brand new. Um, But so there's another, an old William Jennings Bryan at the Scopes trial paper, I keep meaning to finish uh, a paper on uh, Jay Gresham Macon. Uh, that, you know, I kind of mostly wrote, but never quite made into an article. So I'm kind of going back to that period and sort of working through some of those problems. And I'm really interested in some arguments about language, too. I mean, I think that that's a big part of what's going on in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So that's probably what's next, what I'm sort of working on. I'm also spending a lot more time, uh, you know, in a completely different sense, just working on Irish studies stuff because of some of what I teach and I'm sort of involved in study abroad there. Um, so that's maybe another new project after I clear some of this, um, some of this, yeah, some of this fundamentalist modernist controversy stuff. Uh, so I'm kind of thinking of a project on Brendan Behan. I'm thinking of teaching a course on him, which would be just a completely different shift in direction. Uh, but yeah, stuff like that. So nothing, not a new book right away, uh, more like a lot of little things that got to be taken care of. And by the time you, you complete those things, I'm sure you'll have enough material for a whole a uh, sequel series on um, this book based, we'll based see, on we'll see. Uh, yeah, I mean, different things. But um, yeah, I'm not, so I'm not doing a sequel in the sense of some, I mean, well, part of it was there were some of those other chapters that got ditched. For example, I was interested in uh, why it might be offensive for people to appropriate things like cultural appropriation and things like that. What exactly is offensive about that? What does it mean to take other people's sacred symbols? I, and I was interested particularly in contemporary discourses on spirituality that someone do that. So that was actually 
one of the chapters that was originally pitched and I just didn't get it done. So I just ditched it. We ended up saying, so there's no good reason not to talk about that. There was another chapter I was interested in camps, um, particularly when, when there was uh, internment camps at the border, right? And the, the sort of comparisons that some people would make to Holocaust camps, right? And somebody's saying, well, that's offensive. And I was like, well, okay, what's offensive exactly about an analogy? That was another idea. And I had like 20 more things like that, that just kind of kept getting cut. So one I thought is I'll go do those. And then I thought, nah, I'm just going to ditch them. I'm just going to lose them and just go, mm-hmm. go back to the past or go to another country or something like that. And that's kind of where I'm, where I'm moving. Well, you know, the old Irish here is Kuhlan and all that, you know, very, yeah. very interesting kind of way to go. A lot of my thinking about nationalism also started there. Like I, I very early on, like an undergrad, I was thinking about nationalism in that sense. And I was always, I've, you know, my mom's from Belfast, you know, so I've always, been, I, I, early on, I was thinking about Catholics and Protestants. And that was one reason in a dissertation where I chose Al Smith was, you know, as kind of Catholic president and William James Bryan, who's this Presbyterian and how they didn't get along. And I was kind of interested in working out those problems. Um, and while that dissertation didn't actually become a book for complex reasons, um, there, those are two chapters in the book. Um, and so that's kind of, yeah, in a weird way, as you, I guess is the thing you do when you get older. You sort of go back to your roots and some of the early questions you were thinking about. And that's about where I'm at now. Well, very interesting and very much want to thank you for uh, being a part of this episode and coming to discuss your book with us. Again, that book is Going Low, How Profane Politics Challenges American Democracy. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Curtis. Uh, It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, I really appreciate your question. Thanks. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver, and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening.